0: As we turn our attention now to the reading of God's Word, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 this morning. Uh, so let's, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. After this, I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne... The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we turn our attention uh, to reading and trying to understand your word, Father, I pray that you will open our ears, open our hearts, open our spirits to receive uh, that which you would have to say to us. Father, help me to be clear, help me to be direct, uh, help me to be gracious. Lord, and I pray that you would... Uh, this morning, strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing uh, to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are what, where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Um, That is from David Foster Wallace's graduation address to Kenyon College, I think in 2004. uh, You can find this this entire speech on YouTube. Uh, I believe the name of the speech is, is This is Water. And I would highly recommend um watching that it's a It's a brilliant speech but the thing um the thing about this speech that David Foster Wallace gave is that as far as I know uh David Foster Wallace was not a christian uh he did not know Jesus he did not know um really anything of what we're studying in revelation four this morning but but he understood something about human nature that I think ends up proving itself more and more every day. And that is, it is human nature, it is human, the human default to find something that gives our lives meaning, to center our lives on it, and to worship it. And as we look at this scene in Revelation 4, this is what John is saying. That This is what the entire universe is doing, that all of creation is engaged in a worship service, and that Jesus is inviting us in to see that. And so that's what we see in Revelation 4. This is, the, uh, this is the very beginning of the second vision that John has in the book of Revelation. And if you if you remember, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it was written to the church under persecution. Uh, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos. He's in, he's in prison, basically, and Jesus, Jesus comes to him and he says, write this down so that this can be circulated to the churches so that they can have encouragement and hope and faith in time of great persecution. And so that's what John is doing. And so um, I want us to look specifically at the throne room. Uh, John sketches out an amazing picture here and uh it kind of this is one of those passages that it takes every bit of me to not go like super seminary like theology nerd to be like oh well this fine detail is this and then whatever like i know we have a certain amount of time i'm not going to try to go over it um but uh but there's a lot here so we're going to look at the throne room we're going to look at what our response to that should be and then we're going to and then we're going to ask why does any of this matter what does it mean so the first thing is we see the throne room and to understand what is happening, we actually have to go back to Revelation 3 and Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20 is a very famous verse. Um, uh, Revelation 3.20 is the verse where Jesus is says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he's inviting us to open the door. And if you're anything like me, I grew up, um, I grew up in the deep south, uh, and you would hear this, you say, you know, Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, and so now... With every head bowed and every eye closed, you know who's ready to open the door and let Jesus in. There's actually a painting of this, um, and, and in my mind's eye, I can see it so vivid. Uh, there's there's Jesus. He's standing at a door. He's knocking. He has blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, he looks he looks vaguely Republican. Uh, it looks like it looks like it might be it looks like it might be raining. It might be cold, and so the image is you know here's here's cold and wet Jesus standing at the door of the human heart, knocking and longing that someone might open the door and allow him to warm himself by the fire. And that's not the image at all, right? Because because when you look at Revelation 4.1, what's the first thing that John sees? The first thing that John sees is a door that is open. And so instead of some evangelistic, every head bowed, every eye closed, make you feel guilty to let Jesus into your heart passage... What Jesus is actually doing here is Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts and inviting us to see reality. He's inviting us to see that which exists just beyond the reach of our our senses to see what is happening at the center of the universe. And the world as it is has at the very center of it a throne with a king and all creation is worshiping him. Jesus is inviting us in to see the world as it is, with him at the center, in control, sitting on the throne, with his work being finished. So John enters the door, and he sees the very throne room of God. And as we get into a lot of this detail, keep this in mind, that at the center of creation, at the center of everything that we see, there's a worship service going on. And it is not a worship service where um, you know you 're just kind of there and you 're watching it happen, but all creation is participating in it and I actually got to experience something kind of like this. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a stretch, so don 't bring me up on charges, but um, I got to experience something kind of like this a week ago um, one of my uh, one of my favorite bands um, that i 've loved for almost ten years now uh, three years ago they they went on they went on hiatus, they took a break, had some things they needed to get taken care of. Uh, and, and last Thanksgiving they announced they're, they're back. And so they're, 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 they're kind of going on a small tour right now in some of the venues that they uh, kind of love playing in before they, before they took their break. And uh, my wife and I got to go. Uh, we got to go to, to Billy Bob's Honky Tonk in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, which is an amazing place. But what we, what we got there were 6,000 people that were locked in on this band who knew every word to every song. And we're singing along just in absolute joy and celebration that they were back. Who who knows what this means for the future, but we had that moment together. And that's the picture that John is painting, is that all creation is present and engaged and locked in, and they know every word to every song. And if we get lost in the weeds for what I'm about to explain here, remember that. right? That's what's happening. And so John sees and he describes this throne and I think the single most important detail of this entire passage is that the throne is occupied. It is not empty. And John goes into detail later in Revelation for what he sees, so we'll save that for another time. But what John sees is one seated on the throne. And the way that John uh, takes the effort to describe what's happening around the throne, is, is that's reverence that John actually uses um, only for God himself. So so what John is saying here, what he's describing, is that as he's all this stuff, he is describing God who is sitting on the throne, but just describing what's happening around him. And and we need to hear that. y'all. We need to hear this morning that there is at the center of the the universe a throne that is not empty. Because John's readers, they needed to hear it. They needed to know that, that they saw a world that was out of control. They saw a world where the greatest power in the universe was actively seeking them, the greatest known power in the universe, was actively seeking them out and persecuting them and destroying them. And so they saw this persecution, but they also saw the enticement that all you have to do, all you have to do is renounce the faith, and you can have all the trappings, all the glory of the Roman Empire. It's right there. All you have to do is just admit that Caesar is king. And, you know, that's the same world that we live in in so many ways. That we look around us, one of the promises that Jesus says of our age is that there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be famine. There's going to be all this stuff. That this is what we need to see is that there is a throne and that it is occupied. But Revelation 4 reorients us to that beautiful truth. That even when it doesn't necessarily seem like it for us, that God is sitting on his throne, and he is in control, and he is at work. But John tries to explain the vision, and uh, honestly, it's kind of hard. I mean, have you ever tried to uh, describe something that you don't know how to describe? And not like in the way that you're just like, oh my gosh, this is like can't even. And then you even for like 30 minutes straight. You're like, I don't, literally don't have the words, and you just don't stop talking. But like actually to, to see something that you don't know how to describe it. And so all you can do is just find the things that you know of that are the most beautiful things you've ever seen, and just start describing that. That's what John's doing. That as John sees this throne, all he can think of are precious stones. And I want you to think about think about that. That maybe um, maybe you are uh, maybe you're married, maybe you're engaged, maybe you know somebody uh, who is one of those things. But but what's what's one of the first things? that when, when, a, when a girl gets engaged, that everybody says, show me the ring, right? You want to see the ring. Why? Because diamonds are beautiful. <laughs> like, it's not complicated. They are they are absolutely beautiful. And if you've ever seen, if you've ever caught a diamond at just the right time where the light kind of reflects off of it, you know it is it is enthralling. Uh, every now and then, uh, my wife will get her, uh, she'll get her rings cleaned. And, um, and when, that, when, that, when the light catches that clean diamond, you can just stop and, and, and stare at it for seemingly forever. Because it's beautiful. That's what it was designed to do. And so what, what John is doing is he is gazing at the one sitting on the throne. And, he, and he's trying to describe that moment of like, it, it's like, it's like when something beautiful, when light reflects in such a way that it captures your attention that you cannot look away. That's what he sees. And it's stunning. And, he, and 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 I get the sense that if we were to if we were to catch up with John and talk to him about it, he'd just be like, he'd just talk about just wanting to sit there and, and get lost in the reflection of the light for hours on end. But then when John sees the throne, he starts to hear things that are coming from it. Uh, he starts to see flashes of lightning, rumblings, and, and peals of thunder. Um. And and one of my one of my favorite things about living in East Tennessee is that there there aren't tornadoes here. Um. I grew up in Mississippi and. It's like basically like once a week, just got to know where the storm shelter is, know where the safest place in your house is because you're going to have those days where it's going to be like early April and it's going to be like 40 degrees the day before and like 85 degrees the next day and it's going to get bad. Like, you know, and, and, and I, I vividly remember um, this one night, um, we, uh, we were we were living in Tuscaloosa at the time. We had gone over to uh, to Oxford, where where I went to I went to Ole Miss. So we'd gone over to Oxford for a basketball game that weekend, and there were really bad storms coming through, um, tornadoes, all that kind of stuff. And so we took a different way home because the normal way there was supposed to be all these. Uh, in, in fact, dur- during the day, a tornado had had hit uh, one of the towns that we normally would drive through. And so we're driving back. It's late at night. We're on completely unfamiliar roads, and we turn off, and we and we pass by this gas station. And it's completely pitch dark, and as soon as you pass the gas station, we hear the tornado sirens start going off, and it's the scariest feeling in the world. My wife and I are in the car; we've got our ten-month-old son at the time, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm panicking because there's like, there's no way to turn around because the road's narrow, and uh, it, was, it was really scary. And you could hear the thunder and. Uh, Thankfully, um, we we didn't run into anything anything too bad. We did kind of see where straight line winds had knocked a bunch of trees over. But but if you've ever been kind of caught up in a storm like that, you know there is uh, the 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 power is incredible and it's also terrifying because there's nothing that you can do. Um, At least at least if you're experiencing like Tornado Alley in like Oklahoma, it's flat and you can see them from miles away. Versus in like Mississippi, Alabama, you, you can't. You just hope it's not where you are. Um, but what John is doing here, he's not describing some just generic, random, awesome power. When John talks about this, these, uh, these peals of thunder and these flashes of lightning, uh, listen to this from Exodus 19, where the presence of God settles on Mount Sinai. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a, cl- a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. See, what John is doing is he's saying, hey, you know, all those stories that our people grew up telling about God's presence settling on Mount Sinai? That's what we see on the throne. That's who is sitting on the throne. This is the same one who was with us in the wilderness, and he is sitting on the throne. But again, remember, John's readers are living in the shadow of Rome, which is the world power of the time. And they're seeing. Uh, um, they're seeing Caesar who put himself out there as a God. There are centers of worship, all these kinds of things. And yet John is painting this picture on the throne is not Caesar. It is the God of our fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the one before whom even the Roman emperor would be silenced. then John sees in front of the throne, he sees the Holy Spirit. He sees the Holy Spirit at work among the saints, and it's beautiful, He's working in his fullness and in his power. John sees a sea of glass like crystal. Again, this is Old Testament imagery, um, and I didn't mention this before. That the the best way to understand Revelation is not to try to like line it up with current events. It's to read and know the Old Testament because like every sentence in Revelation is an allusion to the Old Testament. So do that. Um, just a side note. Uh, I went to seminary for that, but um, no. Think think about think about the story of Jonah, right? Uh, in the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, right God tells Jonah, "Go to Nineveh, uh, witness to them, tell them about uh, god 's kindness and faithfulness. and Jonah says, no, i 'm not going to do that." He goes the other way. He gets on a boat, and what does God do? In his judgment, he sends a great storm, and then Jonah says, "Guys, this is my fault. They throw him in. What happens to the sea? It immediately calms. What happens uh, in, uh, in the New Testament when Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and a storm comes? Jesus is asleep. They wake him up. Jesus, don't you care? And I imagine Jesus is like half asleep. He just wakes up and says, be still. And he probably goes right back to sleep. What happens? The sea goes like glass. And so what John, again, is describing here is that in the presence of God, all the tumult, all the chaos, all the fear of the world, it goes flat. In the presence of Of God it is peaceful and it is still and then we see all these people seated around the throne and and there's 24 of them to be exact Um, and what God is showing us here uh, is the entirety of the people of God worshiping at the feet of God they are worshiping at the throne Um, there's a lot we can say about that but I won't um but that's, I think that's the imagery that's going here. And, um, and look at what they're wearing. Again, as you're reading Revelation, you see clothing is very important uh, in the book of Revelation. And they're wearing these robes of radiant white. Why is that? Because they've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus has taken his work and cleansed them and dressed them in it. And they're also wearing golden crowns on their head. That this is just the constant reminder that God has made and is making his people new. That we will stand before him in beauty and in glory because it's what he has given to us. Again, we see these creatures that are worshiping, and this is another one of those visions that we don't always know what to do with. But again, I think the simplest explanation is that all creation, not just God's people, but all creation, as Romans 8 tells us, that all creation is longing for restoration. Well, this is the picture of it. The creation has been and is being restored. And it's what we see played out in Psalm 19:1: that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, that they're falling down around his throne, worshiping. They're all worshiping. They're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here's the point of all this, that what John is seeing on the throne is something completely different and wholly other than anything that we've ever been able to imagine. He is seeing something far more beautiful and far more powerful and far more important than the words that he knows how to use can possibly describe. And yet it's also simple. Because at the core of creation is a worship service. And all of creation, all of God's people are engaged in it. See, this is not a God who we get to approach casually or on our terms, but on his. And yet, he is still inviting us in to see this is reality. This is what he's calling us to. And at the center of all creation is a God who is worthy of worship. And so this is one of those things that we hear and it's like, okay, that sounds cool. If I'm ever in like a Bible trivia game, I'll probably be equipped to win it, maybe, hopefully. How do, how do we respond to this? What do we do with it? And I think it means one thing. I think it means at the center of your being, you were created for worship. You were created to find something outside of yourself to find beautiful, to extol, to tell people about. And these are the things that drive everything about who you are and what you do. That's what we're doing. And there was a stretch in your life, probably, where you thought that you could probably figure that out on your own. You could find that inside of yourself, and that lasted for like five seconds. And then you're like, okay, I need something better than this, because we've all, we've all been through there, right? And we want to be noticed by the things that we think are important. And Tim Keller calls worship the controlling mechanism of your existence. Because, again, this means that you will find something that you consider beautiful— You will find something that you think will give you meaning, and then you will do everything in your power to try to get it. And so the question is, do you worship something? The question is, what are you worshiping? What is that thing that gives your life ultimate meaning? And uh, Eugene Peterson has got a really great uh, book on Revelation. Um, I I don't know if it's a commentary. It's just kind of Eugene Peterson just talking about how cool he thinks Revelation is so i don't know what kind of book that is but it's a really good book uh, it's called reverse thunder and he talks about this scene in revelation 4 and he, and he he ties it into something really interesting because israel and rome were known for false worship um, they uh, like if you read through the old testament israel is always kind of fighting within itself of worshiping either god or worshiping the baals and they're setting up these altars and um, all these kinds of things and then and then rome rome had this cult of the emperor Right, where, where the emperor was a god and you had to worship him, and they would come into these small, like non Roman towns. They would take them over, they would put up uh, places of worship for the emperor, and yeah, that's kind of how it worked. But if you think about Psalm, uh, Psalm 121, uh, it's one of the Psalms of Ascent uh, that was the, the Psalms that the people of Israel sang on the journey to Israel to worship. Um, but the psalmist writes, uh, I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come from? Um, or from where does my help come? And and I always read that for the longest time of thinking that the, the psalmist is looking to the hills to, to see God and to see his help. But I actually don't think that's what the psalmist is saying because knowing what we know about where those hills were, as as the travelers would have looked to the hills, they would have seen the centers of false worship. They would have seen these uh, these altars to the Baals and, and they would have realized they needed something beyond the hills. They would have needed something from outside of wherever the roman emperor cult worship was built like they needed something outside of that to come and to save them but then eugene peterson makes the connection with jeremiah 3 which is in i put that in your bulletin uh but he says uh jeremiah says return O faithless sons i will heal your faithlessness behold we come to you for you are the lord our god truly the hills are a delusion That the centers of false worship that we look to, to give ourselves meaning, to try to find the safety and the comfort that we long for, Jeremiah says they're a delusion. They cannot offer you the help that you need. So as Israel sought the Baals, as Rome sought the the Roman cult, and as we seek the different centers of false worship in our own lives, they're a delusion. And what are those centers? What are the things that we, that we do? It's really easy, I think, to point it out to other people. Like, why in the world uh, does anybody care that one millionaire slapped another millionaire on the face on an award show for movies that you probably haven't seen? Like, nobody cares, and yet everybody knows that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage at whatever award show that was. Why? Because we love celebrity. We, we worship it. We want it. Why does your favorite team lose and you're depressed for days on end? Why do you get so angry at your team losing that you would throw golf balls and mustard bottles at their coach? I'm still salty about that. I'm sorry. Um, I went to the Ole Miss Tennessee game this year. But um, why, why, do, why do we abuse things like alcohol and money and sex and people? Like, like why do we do these things when we're sad? Because It's worship. Because we are trying to ascribe those things the power to fix our lives. The cult of celebrity, the obsession with sports, the illusion of control that addiction gives us, these are the things that we're chasing, and it's also the things that we give up in order to have those things. But the thing that's scary about this is that we can actually make this look really godly. I I do campus ministry on a Christian school. And I see the way that, that the appearance of righteousness can crush the souls of students. That that's what we fight for and long for. So what do you worship? Do you worship control? Do you mistake your need to be in control with something that looks really Christian? Are you trying to define your life by how moral you are, or how in control of your passions and sins you might be, in the hopes that God will look at you and somehow think that's good enough, so that nobody will ever have to look behind the curtain and see what a mess you actually are? Are you longing for authenticity? Are you trying so hard to be the true version of yourself? And that you're just following the latest self-care or self-expression trends. You don't know what you're doing, but you just know you're supposed to be doing it. And you have this unbreakable conviction that it's the right thing to do. And is it possible that the sense of frustration and dissatisfaction that we have with our everyday lives is actually because Jesus is standing at the door knocking and saying, come and see what's really going on. Is that possible? Because look at what the elders gathered around the throne are doing. Right? They have these crowns, they have these beautiful crowns that I would assume are pretty cool. And when the time comes to start to sing, what do they do? They throw them on the ground. those crowns are are symbolic, of course. Uh, They symbolize power, status, significance. And they throw them on the ground. Why? Because what they've seen on the throne is far more beautiful. It is far more powerful. It is far more significant than anything else that could have possibly captured their imagination. And they have no response other than just to throw it on the ground. That's good news for two reasons. The first, it's good news because you can rest. Right, when I was a kid... um, the whole idea uh, that you would get um, that you would somehow get jewels in your crown uh, was kind of this like humble brag thing, like, you know, we're all going to heaven and it's all God's grace, but like I'm a better Christian than you. So like I'm gonna have like cause I tithe like twelve percent and you only did ten percent or maybe even nine percent, you dirty sinner. Like, or like I helped an old lady across the street or like whatever. Like we're we're finding these ways, even even with Jesus' grace, we're finding ways to still compete. Which is which is like which is cool. Like you might have you might have more uh, jewels in your crown than me. That's okay. Um, I don't think that's the image, but whatever. Because whatever it is that you accomplish, whatever's on your crown, when the time comes in heaven to start singing, you're going to throw it on the ground, because it's not it's not that big of a deal, it's not that important. And so you can rest. You can actually rest in His grace and in His goodness and in His control, because it's His crown anyway. But the second reason that I think this is good news is because it reminds us that it's not up to us. That Jesus is inviting us into this reality. That there is at this very moment a worship service that all of creation is engaged in. And it's happening in the throne room of God. See, it's not that like, like we do this weird thing where when people that we love die, we're like, well, they're, I know they're watching down on us in heaven. I'm trying to, they're not watching you. There's something like way cooler than whatever you're doing going on in heaven right? They're not sitting around fretting over whether or not you had your quiet time or they're not sitting around being like, well, if this worship service is going to continue, like they really need to tell more people about Jesus. No, they are engaged in worship right now and they don't need you to join in because God's reign has nothing to do with you. And yet here's Jesus inviting us in. So what happens? What happens when we fail? What happens when our faith is weak? What happens, and unfortunately we see this a lot now, what happens when prominent Christian leaders um, betray the things that they said they believe? And that's not to dismiss those things as if they're not, in, they're not significant. But in the grand scheme of things, the worship service continues. That all creation continues to worship at the feet of the throne. So here's what it frees you to do. It frees you to lay down your crown at his feet. If you are tired of trying to project this image of you that has it together, that has it pieced together, that you've always got it figured out, you can lay that down. If you're tired of having to follow whatever the latest like hashtag or justice trend or Christian movement book, whatever, like you can lay all of that down. If you're tired of pursuing the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the perfect family, the perfectly cultivated image of you, you can stop and lay it all down. Because even if it all works out exactly the way you want to, in the presence of God, you're going to throw it on the ground anyway. So we'll wrap it up with this. But um, I always think about um, this scene, this this uh, this throne room scene in Revelation 4, kind of like the Wizard of Oz, um, but like the opposite of the Wizard of Oz. Because you know the story, Dorothy and Toto, they get swept up in a tornado, and they go to the land of Oz, and they want to get home. And so they they journey to the wizard and they pick up some friends along the way and they get there and and it's and it's an amazing display but then but then Toto figures out that the whole thing's a sham because he goes behind the curtain and the guys like well don't pay no mind to the, to the to the man behind the curtain and, and, and it turns out he's just a snake oil salesman he's he's nobody and what they realize is that what they needed to get home was actually inside of themselves all along and and we try, like, like, even though I think we know to some degree that that's not true, we try to believe that. We really want to believe that about ourselves, to believe that about the things around us, that it's inside of us. And, and then all of a sudden, things start to happen in life, and that gets exposed. And it's just disappointing. See, we can buy the lie that we can be whatever we want, and we can maybe genuinely believe it for a very short period of time, Before we just start begging people, don't look. Don't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to who I really am. Because then you'll see how helpless I really am. That there's no amount of activism. There's no amount of our best efforts at righteousness. There's no amount of self-care. There's no GPA. There's no relationship. There's no perfect marriage. There's no perfect kids. There's none of that that we can come up with on our own that is ever going to be enough. And And we... Uh, we've grown up with this problem and I include myself here is that we've grown up with this with this religion this kind of like evangelical brand of Christianity that stresses the closeness of God right that God's right there he's with you all the time and um and he is I'm not saying that he's not um but I'm saying we can overemphasize that to the point where God becomes so close that that he just doesn't feel important because he's just kind of there if I do something wrong or whatever, he's just there. But, but, that, but that, I think that robs him of his power. Because what John is pointing us to is God's transcendence. That yes, God is near, but even as he is near, he is so much further away. And that's actually a good thing because without God's transcendence, things like grace and love, they become a mere sentimentality, which makes great movies on the Hallmark Channel, but it does nothing to change your life. It doesn't do anything to change your life. And then what happens when, when God's presence becomes mere sentimentality, what we do is it creates this desire in us to try to recapture this fire. right? Like when I, when I got saved, I, had, I was on fire. I had this passion. It was great. And, and now that's out. And so it's up to me to start to try to figure out how to rekindle this again. Um, I w- I'm going to walk an aisle. I'm going to walk an aisle again. I'm going to walk an aisle a third time just to make sure. I'm going to pray the prayer. I'm going to pray the prayer again because maybe the last time it didn't, it didn't take. Uh, this time I'm going to write my sin and I'm going to write it on a rock and I'm going to throw it into a lake. Uh, maybe I'm going to write my sin on a piece of paper and nail it to an actual cross. Ask me how I know about all of this, by the way. Very confused evangelical kid growing up. And none of it works. Why? Why does none of that work? Because it's all about you. It's all about your efforts to recapture that fire It is all about your effort to be holy enough, to be righteous enough, and to hope and to long that maybe God won't look behind the curtain. God will will not see the man back there. But really, all God is calling you to do is to lay it all down and to simply drink in his beauty, to simply see his majesty and his power and his glory and his beauty and his might and everything else. Because John is saying, this is reality. This is the center of the universe, and it's all accessible to us because of the one who is seated on the throne, as he reveals in Revelation 5, that it is the lamb who was slain, that it is the one who, who lived for us, died for us, and calls us into worship so that all that other stuff that we're doing, we can throw it down at his feet. And I believe that's his invitation for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word thank you that you've given it to us, that we can understand. Um, I pray that, Father, the things that uh, I've said this morning that are true and faithful, uh, that reflect your glory and your beauty and your majesty, Lord, that those would be the things that we would remember that would stick with us, Lord, and for those things that are not, Father, that they would uh, that they would fall away. Lord, I pray for uh, my friends uh, and the people here, those of us here this morning that are really struggling uh, to look good, um, to keep it together. Father, would you give us the grace and the knowledge to throw those things at your feet and to rejoice in what's really happening at the center of the universe? Lord, and maybe there are some of us here that have never believed that before this morning. Lord, 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 would today be the day that we could look through the door and see the reality, to see the beauty, to see the center of the universe that you are calling us into? Lord Jesus, would you do these things?